Hey, yo, what's going on, fam? Thank you for liking it again. This is Clarity Podcast. And on today's episode, I have a very special guest. She is an author. She is a relationship expert. She is a black vegan. So we're going to talk about all that and a lot more. So hello, my friend. Hello there. Thanks for having uh, me on, TK. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure. It's an honor. You know, like I said, those are all the things that I want to talk about. And I think this episode could last for hours if it weren't for time restraints. And I know it's very early over there. So thank you so much for accepting to do this. <laughs> I'm only doing this because it's you. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. <laughs> Off air, we were talking about, you know, what's going on in the world right now. I wanted to touch on veganism, but all, and not just the ethical side of things, but also about the environmental side of things. You know, tell me a little bit about how you got into it, how you do it, and what you think we should know more about, especially in the, in the Black community. Yeah, you know, and that's where it gets really interesting and um, somewhat divergent from the mainstream focus on mm. uh, veganism. So some people prefer to use the phrase a plant-based diet. But, mm -hmm. you know, to me, it was one and the same because no matter what got you into eating this way, the results are the same. You see what I mean? Whether you focus on the animals from the beginning and the environment from the beginning or your own health from the beginning, all three things like a, a triangle come to the same end result in that the environment is a better place, the animals are saved and your health improves. So no matter what draws you in, but that's what initially tends to be the focus for African-Americans is primarily health. And the reason is, I'm sure, you know, if you, you seem to be a very educated young man, you can, you can read about the horror, horrific statistics with kidney disease, cancer, hypertension, strokes, heart disease that impacts African-Americans and diabetes at a ratio of like two or three to one over other demographics. The primary cause of this, diet. Yep. So, you know, increasing the fresh fruits, vegetables, and, you know, cutting back on traditional, what we call soul food things, you know, a lot of meat-based products, processed food, gravy, fried foods, you know, I mean, it's delicious. Don't get me wrong. It's delicious. <laughs> I grew up eating that stuff when my grandmother cooked it. But one yeah. thing that my family always has done is eat lots of vegetables. And that is a, a traditional African thing, you know, collard greens, lots of yams, you know, other kinds of vegetables, um, squashes and things like that. We just got kind of turned away from that once we came to the United States. So it's very interesting that, you know, it's kind of like a, a circular journey back to the starting point. But more and more uh, African-Americans are getting on board with, uh, you know, eating the vegan slash plant-based diet than ever before. And I have a very active group on Facebook called uh, What Black Vegans Eat. I just started it, I don't know, just <laughs> as a, a joke. I'm not really a joke, but I mean, you know, some place to put recipes or whatever. Mm -hmm. That thing has almost 50,000 members now. Wow. Yeah, it's, that, it's that, huge. It's that's, ridiculous. Yeah, that's a lot, yeah. I, <laughs> and the you, food you, they make is so good. I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah, I bet, I bet. I mean, vegan cuisine has come a long way. A lot of people are still stuck in, you know, with they used to say probably in the 90s or not even but like it's come a long way and now that you know a lot of minorities 
are picking it up and some would say going back to what we used to eat because veganism from everything that I've read is not a Western thing. It's something that no. Africans used to practice before. Plant-based diets were very prominent on the African continent as well. So how do you feel we sort of lost that connection with this lifestyle and the respect that we owe to other sentient beings? Well, I, you know, I'm sure a lot of it is, you know, I don't want to preach at people because I know a lot of that is based on economics. Yeah. And if you have hungry children and you only have inexpensive processed foods or meat-based things to feed them because that's mm. what, you know, you were given at the food bank or given at the local church or what, you know, you, that's all that the food stamps would get or whatever. I am not going to say anything to those people mm. about what they're eating. That would be so inappropriate. So okay. I, you know, I try to guide people who ask me on how they can stretch those dollars and how they can put together foods that are less meat-based and less processed. So I think a lot of it is that economics from in this country, the transition of, you know, Africans to the slave industry was mm -hmm. all part of that also because you're going to eat what they give you. Okay, yeah. which tended to be not very nutritious food and animal leftovers. But, you know, mm -hmm. you're, it's either that or starve. What are you going to do? <laughs> yep. So, you know, right, right. Th there was a lot of adaptation and, uh, you know, culturally, a lot of those dishes became those kind of uh, survival meals became the basis for what became, you know, Southern soul food cuisine. A lot of it, I just never ate. My aunts used to make it, you know, things like pig ears and pig yep. feet, I mean, you know, chitlins, which are the, the intestines and things. I mean, those were considered delicacies almost at this point. But uh, I, you know, I would just look at it. I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> but, you know, I, like I said, I'm, I'm not going to begrudge anyone that eats those things because either they like it or because this was all they could eat. It was all they had. <laughs> so, you know, it becomes a very delicate balancing act between, you know, our beliefs and then condemning other people, not knowing their personal circumstances. I, I kind of struggle with that when I see, you know, a lot of vegans jumping on that bag wagon and trying to berate people for what they eat, you know, not really knowing anything about that person's history or wallet or employment status, mm -hmm. or you just mm -hmm. don't know. We don't know what's going on Education. in their life. Yep. Exactly. We don't yep. know. And so all we can do is if they ask us questions about the way that we eat, approach that in a very positive, uplifting, informative way that's non-judgmental. And that's mm -hmm. why I formed that group. And, uh, and it's, it's been working very well. It's pretty crazy because a lot of vegans, uh, you know, go vegan because of empathy and, and you know, uh, good things. And in the end, when they're exposed to people, like you said, who aren't, uh, the first thing that comes isn't empathy, but it's rather, you know, uh, either like feeling attacked or just basically attacking others because you've had that information before they had it. Uh, I find right. that quite fascinating in a sense that as humans, um, we, you know, we tend to forget that, you know, many of us were not even born vegan. So, you know, it's like we've been in that position before where we weren't. And we know that if a vegan person comes up to you and, and talks to you in a certain way, then it's not the best way to bring you onto veganism. So, yeah, I, I've exactly. always found it like super intriguing the way we interact. I mean, some vegans interact with um, non-vegans. You're se. so diplomatic and polite. Look at you. <laughs> saying, saying you found intriguing. You know, the word that I call them is jerks. 
It's like yeah. they're just, you know, they we call them to the vegan police because they want to feel like, well, you know, I do this and I think this way and this yeah. is what I do. And this is everyone should be this way. And if you're not the way that I am, then that means that you're wrong. That's the approach that they take. And it makes people, you know, it's it, it has such a negative impact on what we're trying to to, to do and it makes people hate vegans so when they Absolutely. act like that you know they're taking that negative energy out about something that could be very helpful to people you know our goal is to be the messengers of information and education not 100%. to berate people like that and I dri- it drives me crazy so I, I you know I'm listening to you and say well I could really learn something from this guy he's so diplomatic I didn't get that gene <laughs> I didn't get that gene <laughs> <laughs> no, I try to be, I try to be, but sometimes, to be honest, it's hard. Um, you know, you mentioned, you know, the fact that some people just don't have access to the information or the means. Um, right. You know, having traveled a little bit, I've come across people in some areas of the world, like, namely in, in the Saharan Desert, like in Africa or in Somalia or whatever, uh, where people live off animals. So they basically have to kill animals, whether it's a camel, whether it's a, it's a whatever, a sheep, whether it's there, it's fishing they have to go through that because in the areas that they live in, there is nothing actually that, you know, where, where they can get fruits and veggies. Some, some right. most of them actually have never seen uh, other veggies other than, you know, the ones that grow over there. They're nomads, but they're nomads within their area. So it's, it's a, it's a whole, it's a big desert where there's nothing that grows. And so, you know, when, when I talk to, um, <laughs> when I talk to people who, like you said, are very judgmental of these people and who go like you know everyone if i can do it everyone can do it i find it quite close-minded okay so um now let's probably switch to a whole different topic which is your field of expertise if i'm correct you've basically been like you said on your website fixing love since 97 that's pretty impressive 97 that's a no it's actually longer than that that's, oh, wow. that, that's when that website, when I put up that website, but oh um, I first started um, on AOL fresh out of college in 1993. 1993. Oh my God. That's, I, I yeah. didn't even know that was possible. <laughs> yeah, I know. Look at you. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I've been at this a long time. 97 is, uh, the internet wasn't even, you know, that common at that point. So, wow. So how, how did that come about? How did you like go, like, was it something that you did in college and you've always wanted to do? Was it something that you found along the way? How did that happen? That is a really good question. And I, I, uh, I had to think about that one at one point and it was an interview about a couple, oh, two or three years ago. It's like, how did I get on this path? And then I remembered when I was in college, my major is mass communications and I was doing a, mm. an, an internship at a local newspaper in in Houston where I went to university and uh one thing I was supposed to go out and do these kind of man on the street type interview questions you know just a a human interest column that's that was my job they didn't want me doing anything you know that really depended on news and things like that at first so this woman we had a woman who was doing an advice questions and answers well she walked into the office one day we had deadline i don't know like five, say this is around noon deadline's 5 p.m 
Mm. And she walks in and she says, oh, I'm getting married and I'm leaving the state. And she starts going through her desk and she gets all her stuff and says, ta-ta. And she walks out the door. And they're like, well, wait a minute. What about your column? And she just looks at everybody and goes out and closes the door. There was this wild panic. And, you know, here I am, this young kid, 19 years old. And they're like, well, oh, my God, what are we going to do? I said, oh, you know, I can do it. And uh, they looked at me like, what? You were born last week, girl. Get out of here. Uh-huh. So I was like, you know, I said, no, you know, I, I'm, even though I'm young, I'm, you know, pretty mature for my age. You know, I have three brothers and my dad spent a lot of time talking to me about, you know, men and life and relationships and things. He wanted me to be prepared. So when mm. I went away to college, I was, you know, ready. So I sat down with the questions that they got in and I pinned my answers, give it to the editor. And he loved it. The column got so many compliments. So after that, that became my job. So when I finished college and left Texas, came back to California, I started working uh, for .com here that had an AOL channel, and that uh, was called oh. Net Noir. And uh, so I did the same thing there and hosted live chats and things like that. My job kind of morphed into being uh, the online marketing manager, but I still did my own blog and, in 1997. And this, was, and this was like you said you were a marketing manager, and this was what year? Uh, I started doing that in 95, 96, wow. somewhere around there. You're and an OG. online marketing. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's, I didn't even know that existed back then. I mean, it was different, obviously, but I didn't right. even know like they had managers for that kind of stuff because, like I say, it was so early on that I wouldn't even think that they thought that far ahead, but apparently some did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we, we know that was the, at the beginning of online dating. Because uh, oh, yeah. I remember that Match.com and this company called One and Only were the big players at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just, I don't know, it's just, it's just really interesting to see, you know, the change and the development and, you know, using streaming media and all the things that we can do now. Uh, at that time in 96, 97, these things didn't exist, didn't have these capabilities. So it's, yeah. been, it's been interesting to watch. Uh, I bet. And now how, how do you feel about, you know, the new new gen stuff like apps, like dating apps and, you know, the, the new way things are done? Well, do you want me to be honest? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm... It's trash. Oh, it's trash. Real? Oh, trash. It's just, I don't know. You know, there's something about these apps where, you know, you're mm. looking at this and you're judging per- a person in in like a tenth of a second based on what yep. your face and you're swiping left swipe 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 and then you see something that you know that you like and so you swipe the other way i don't know it's just it's this instant gratification society that we have now so mm-hmm. our the children are not learning that you know you have to wait for things that you have to um save for things that everything that you want is not going to be given to you either right now or at all And so we have a lot of young people with a grand sense of entitlement that is really kind of, I don't even know, it's disturbing to see to me. And and it must be super hard to, you know, since you work with these people, you're constantly put in front of people who live through that lens. They live through that instant gratification and when, when they don't get what they want or what they think they deserve, they just sort of bounce from, you know, one thing to the other. So it must be super challenging for you as a, you know, as a person who gives advice to these people to just tell them that's not how life works. Uh, good things exactly. take time and, and they take hard work as well. And that also applies to relationships before anything else, to be honest. Oh, TK, I had a, a conversation. You, you're familiar with that platform called Clubhouse? Yep. Oh, it's a nightmare city. Okay, so <laughs> I, I, was, oh. 
I was doing a, I was on a show there and uh, they were talking about this phrase that's become very common the last year or two where men actually ask a woman, what do you bring to the table? Now, I don't know if it's like that over there in Paris, but it is here in the U.S. And uh, I'm like, what? Who does that? So these guys were feeling like, you know, this is what they should do. I said, no, sir, that's wrong. You're looking for a shortcut. You're looking to sit there with your legs crossed and your little checklist and ask a woman what kind of things make her more qualified than someone else. You're asking her to compete with other invisible women that aren't even there to to try to get you. I mean, who are you that anybody should be going through these questions? Sounds like a job application. <laughs> exactly. Except at least with a job, you get like some benefits. And <laughs> For so real. I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there in disbelief, right? And this guy was actually arguing with me. And I said, sir, that's the point of purpose of dating. You would figure out yourself through conversation, spending time around that person, seeing how they operate, seeing how their temper is. Exactly. And you would be able to figure out yourself what this person brings to the table. Do you feel like that's new gen stuff or was it like that before? Oh, no, no. This is definitely within just the last couple of years. This is some crazy stuff. I don't know what this is. a couple of years. I thought you were going to say a couple of decades. Oh, no, no, no. This is new. This is new. Oh, wow. Like 2020, you know, I don't know, 2019, something like that. It's it's a relatively (laughs) new thing. Is it like the kind of question they ask like openly or is it something that they imply? No, openly. Like on a date, right? So you basically like meet someone and you're like, what do you bring to the table? Yes. Is PK, that, please, nah. please don't do that. Don't do that. Don't. <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty crazy. It's pretty heartless, to be honest. It, and it loses, like, all the magic of, you know, dating or meeting someone, you know, who potentially is your life partner, right? You would think that they would, the discovery process is what makes it fun and exciting 100%. as you peel back layer after layer of who, discovering who this person is and what makes them tick. They want to bypass all of that because see why? Instant gratification. They want to go directly to who they think is going to be his perfect match based on the woman's responses. And my advice to every woman is to never answer that question. And if a guy should be so bold as to ask you that question, if you're on the phone, hang up. And block his number. And if you're on a date, get your purse, get your coat, throw up the deuces, and be out. So that's, you know, that's what I advise. You're all about that sucker-free love, right? (laughs) All about it, honey. All of it. (laughs) (laughs) I I respect that. I feel like there has been, I don't know, this is just my opinion, but I feel like a lot of people do not respect themselves enough to know what's good and what's not good enough for them. And so they stick to what's easy come uh, in a sense. And I feel like the kind of people who would answer that kind of question and not pick up their stuff and leave are people who just unfortunately, for some reason, lack in self-esteem. The whole thing comes from, you know, your childhood, how you grew up. And since we're not all exposed to people like yourself or family members who literally like boost our self-confidence and whatnot it's super easy to fall for guys or girls who are deceitful who can be deranged in a sense because for me a person who asks that is someone who isn't right in their mind well excuse my giggle but i i i firmly i mean we're in the same camp there i just don't understand it and that's again you know reflecting back to an earlier comment to me reflective of this instant gratification Hmm. society that we have developed and uh, it's just really unfortunate. And even though even something as simple, what you just mentioned, I'm sorry, the uh, low self-esteem, mm-hmm. that is to me at the core of most relationship problems. 
because right. people, will, their low self-esteem will get them involved in situations with people they shouldn't be involved in, staying in situations they shouldn't be in, you know, shouldn't stay in, and accepting treatment and language being directed at them that if they had a better pride about themselves and better sense of confidence that they deserve better, they would not accept that at all. So to me, that's 90% of what is the root problem in the advice letters that I respond to. Hmm. Yeah, a lot of this comes from a certain lack of education, right? Whether it's at home, whether it's in schools, do you think our school system or our society at least should pay more attention to the human side of things? Because I feel like nowadays everything that we learn is very practical, it's very technical, and it's stuff that we can put to use uh, in order to produce more, in order to be more productive, more efficient, but we are less in tune with who we are as human beings. When you, you study communications in college, they teach you about how to communicate to a customer, but we completely forget about the human side of things and that your customer is actually human beings with emotions, with feelings, with tastes that can be different and with a complex psychology. So. Do you think we should implement some new ways, maybe not in the school system, because I feel like that's too much to ask at this point, but some sort of communities where we can openly talk about these things and share these things, especially for those who come from broken homes or families who don't have time for, for those kind of conversations? Oh, absolutely. That would be extremely helpful. I don't um, you know, know how that would work. I think a lot of us, you know, I learned that at home. Uh, with my with my parents, my my mom spent lots of time teaching my brothers and I what we call home training to say mm -hmm. please, to say thank you, to uh, when we go to someone's home, we bring a little gift. Um, yep. I don't know all kinds of manners and 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 values that were instilled in us that I think mm -hmm. a lot of parents may not really have time to think about right now because they're working two jobs, they're trying to survive, exactly. and these are very critical economic times worldwide most of the population is struggling. So uh, it's, it's, you know, it, it is a very necessary thing, but I'm not really sure with the battles for survival, how many people are even thinking about that right now. It's unfortunate because their children are growing up to become adults without this skill set. So even though they're employed, you know, they, they have the education to get these positions. They don't do well in them because they don't know how to talk to other people in a way that is conducive to building a rapport with people, showing respect to people, developing understanding as a team, things like that, that make you successful in the workforce. They don't have those personal skills, that emotional intelligence either. Right. So it's, 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 it's a very interesting dynamic. You know, I sit around and think about this kind of stuff and I can see you the same way and, uh, you know, try to come up with solutions. And then I write about it or I you know, create a video to kind mm -hmm. of warn people and say, you know, this is the direction you, you might want to go. You might want to start thinking about this kind of thing if you're a parent. So I, I, I am in full agreement with everything that you just said. It's pretty crazy because like you said, it's, it's the kind of stuff that's gonna be useful to these people even in the, in the workplace. I've read a lot of things about soft skills and how soft skills are gonna be as if not more important as hard skills that you learn whether you like it or not actually when you're getting a job, right? But soft right. skills are the kind of skills that, like you said, emotional intelligence, communication, this and that, um, that you don't pick up unless you literally are exposed to them, especially at a younger age. You can learn anything 
at whatever age but i feel like the younger you learn these things the better and like you said we're on a lot of people are in survival mode now that's why like i was asking you isn't it time for members of our society to start thinking about these things covid didn't help either we were you know all stranded at home we were all living within four walls and so we also like lost touch with others and so right. we sort of lost touch on how to behave around others how do you feel this whole pandemic and this whole crisis has affected people in the dating world oh, it's like a bomb went off went off the social and i think about the time when in my 20s you know running in and out of nightclubs and going on trips and you know spontaneous weekends here and there with my friends mm -hmm. just load in the car and go someplace, no reservation, no nothing. People in that age group for the last couple of years haven't been able to do any of that. Yeah. Nothing, not even a house party could they do without risking death. So it's, it was, it's a very interesting time and in that the social contact that human beings need, I mean, you can get some of that with Zoom and, you know, Teams and WhatsApp and I think you're looking at the screen, but that's not the same because being able to read body language and hear people breathing and, you know, the skin contact that humans need is just not there. So it's becoming a very interesting kind of isolation, I think has affected a lot of people's mental health. Have you noticed how many people are just kind of losing it? They don't know how to handle being by themselves and, and not having people to socialize with. And it's, it's created some real problems. I don't know what's going to happen once things really open back up. We're going to have a lot of people who are suffering from all kinds of illnesses back out in society, and they're going to need help adjusting to that. I'm not sure they'll, be, they'll really notice that that's what they need to do and that they're not really equipped to be in close contact with other people right now. They need to, you know, some adjustment time. Do you think we're ready for that? I mean, the people who give advice, psychologists, psychiatrists, do you think we're, we're equipped? Because this is, this, this word has been used a lot, but this is an unprecedented pandemic and event in life as we know it. So do you think we're, we're ready for that post-COVID era where people forgot how to, you know, behave in society and some do not want to go back to what it was pre-COVID. Some want to go back to exactly how it was. There's there's a lot of division. So do you think we're ready for that? No, no. But I think we better start getting ready. It would require us to do kind of a self-assessment, which, you know, if you if a person with that has low emotional intelligence aren't mm. even going to know how to do. But going into your own head and thinking about, okay, what what is my perception of other people? What's my current perception of relationships? What do I talk about with people? You know, how do I behave around people? What are my expectations? And are other people obligated to meet them? How am I going to conduct myself? You used to being by yourself for the last two years. Now suddenly you're going to be in a situation where you're interacting face to face with yep. other people. And it's going to be kind of a, a culture shock. And think about all the young children, you know, the playground is an area where children learn how to conduct themselves and how to be people Absolutely. pretty much. They haven't had that for two and years. Two years is a long time in a child's life. Between two and four, you're a completely different person. And if you haven't had, like you said, that chance to face life and learn how to act with others, yeah, it's, it's gonna create some serious, serious damage because whether we like it or not, humans are social animals. All of us need that. If you look at the reports of most you know terrorists and people who shoot down schools and stuff in the u.s 
most of them have these sorts of problems, right? They have some difficulty feeling accepted in society, dealing with others, being normal and playing a part. Do you think long-term things are going to be ugly, going to turn out ugly because of all this pandemic? I anticipate that in, we'll see the, the end result, the greatest impact from it in about mm. 10 years. Because the years. people who are young will become teens yep. and those that are now teens will become young adults. And that demographic will have a great impact on what happens in societies all over the world. There's a high likelihood that they will be suffering from some kind of antisocial personality disorder because of the fact that they haven't learned how to negotiate. They haven't learned how to share. They haven't learned how to resolve conflicts in a way that is peaceful and that Mm -hmm. a win-win creates a win-win situation. These are all things that we need to have and skills we need to have in in society to maintain our societies. And right now there's a lot of me-ism, which is every time someone, one group has a me-ism kind of behavior, it negatively impacts another. Are they going to be happy about that? No. Can we not work together to create this win-win situation instead of feeling like, well, it has to be the way that I want it? So, it's, I don't know. I, this is That's just my guess since you asked me. That's when I expect to see the greatest negative impact of all of it. Interesting. Um, do you think there's going to be a difference in what kind of, you know, minorities and what kind of people of different social, economic backgrounds are going to be more impacted? Or do you think it's going to be level play for everyone involved? I can't really even venture a guess because for the first time in, you know, 100 years, we have something that has impacted everyone on this planet one way, shape, or form. And it's, it's an unprecedented thing in our lifetime. So I can't even really venture a guess for how this is going to turn out. COVID was created or first discovered in Asia. There's mm-hmm. been a lot of anti-Asian hate crimes being committed here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like, dude, really, it's two years later and you, you really think that this is going to solve the problem? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. You know, but people are, like I said, being locked up for two years is just making them crazy. They're coming up with crazy ideas. And I, so, you know, that's a good question, TK, and I'll have to give that some thought. But at this very moment, I can't even venture again. Mm-hmm. One problem we've had continuously here is the people who have a sense of entitlement and feel like that the mask rules don't apply to them. Yep. Oh, my goodness. It's just been crazy with that sense of entitlement. And and this is pre, you know, the inoculation. And Mm -hmm. they just felt like, well, because I don't want to wear a mask, I shouldn't have to. No matter what the stated policy is, no matter what the government says, no matter what the health directives are, I don't want to wear a mask. And so I don't, you can't make me like a two-year-old. One person could impact the health of the 200 people that that person comes into contact with, Mm -hmm. with absolutely no regard for what the possible impact of their behavior on these other people's health and possibly lives. Again, not knowing what this person's health condition is. You know, you're putting them at a higher risk because you just don't want to wear a mask for 10 minutes. You can take it off when you get in your car. You're in a Mm -hmm. grocery store for what, 20, 30 minutes at the most? How's it going to hurt you to wear a mask and protect not only yourself, but people at your home where you're going back to? So I don't know. It's a very interesting society that we live in. And I do. I tend to stay in my house a lot because it's safer. People are nutty. Yeah, I heard that. Let's go back to the dating world. You've been doing this for so long that you must have, you know, seen the changes. And we talked briefly about, you know, uh, how people deal with these things today. Do you think this new internet, new I want everything right now, new sense of entitlement is going to change the idea of marriage for youngsters? 
Yes and no. One of the things, you know, and I don't really like to generalize and point fingers, but the main persons who are responsible for deciding if there's going to be marriage or not are the men, because the men ask the woman to marry them. Mm -hmm. I mean, traditionally, I mean, so mm -hmm. there's some women who want to propose. In general, like for various religious purposes or whatever, you know, the religions that people follow and the social structure that we have, the men are the pursuers. The males are the ones who choose their wife. In the Christian society, you know, the, they have this thing that says, you know, the man who find, one man finds a wife finds a good thing. It doesn't say the wife that finds a husband is a good thing. You know, so the, hmm. the, the, the onus is on men to lead in that direction. If men don't want to marry, what are women supposed to do? So the ones who could really turn this around are men. However, what is happening is because of the meism and because of the lack of maturity and the lack of, you know, this, what we call home training in the black community, the young men aren't really being raised to be husbands. So it puts us in a very interesting dilemma. You know, if you're looking for the men to be a husband, but he's not really qualified to be a husband and I mean, who wants to marry someone who's not really qualified to be a husband and a father? So mm -hmm. it puts young women in a very interesting situation where they might want this. They've been raised to believe that this is where they, what they should do within their religions and different things. But there's no viable mate. What is going to happen to the institution of marriage? So I believe that for children and family, for the continuation of society, it is an excellent vehicle. But mm -hmm. we would have to get back to some basics of raising our children to understand the value of it and how to be married because it's not a picnic it's not like a korean drama where it's all romance and stuff it's mm -hmm. it's some work and yep. i think you know with the instant gratification society people are not prepared to put in that kind of work they're not ready for it they don't have they have no concept of it so you see why I mean? what i'm going with this it's like we're right back to that instant gratification meism thing Hmm. I don't want to give up my freedom. I like just sleeping around. I just like whatever. And so they're not seeing where there's really any value to being with one person and building a legacy in a family unit. How do we fix that though? Because for most youngsters, people about my age, for instance, who haven't had everything that you're talking about, haven't learned that in you know, their families or, or whatnot. How do you learn that now that you're exposed to it, you're at an age where you're supposed to behave a certain way or at least you know, be mature enough to know what you want, but you're not. How do you go back and fix that? Well, one thing that used to help is, you know, we always, we had family members who were, the, you know, the elders of the family who modeled marriage for the younger generation. Mm -hmm. And they were a resource of information. You know, I'm having this conflict with my wife. You know, I'm having this conflict with my husband. I don't know how to negotiate it. They were there to kind of mentor you and, and you know, tell you how to get through it so that it created a win-win situation and yep. the marriage could continue successfully. We don't have that, those resources now. So the only thing that I can think of. Some people go to church and get it. Mm -hmm. That might work for some. But I think a structure, some organization, a community organization, some kind of group or a co cooperation would structure something like how to be married for men, how to be married for women, and you know, offer some courses maybe, some kind of video training, something so that people could see that there is value to this. Marriage has not been around for no reason through centuries of humanity so there has to be something good about it let's focus on that and get our children to understand what's good about it and then perpetuate this 
But mm -hmm. uh, right now, there's nothing really in place outside of churches to do that. Well, you see, that's fascinating what you just said, because you touched on the community side of things and you talked about church and the quote unquote house of God is supposed to be the place that you go to to get enlightened in a sense. And to get enlightened isn't just about, you know, the afterlife. It's about this life before everything else. You have to be enlightened here and you have to be conscious before, you know, you think about the, the afterlife. As time passes, we're less and less in contact with the spiritual side of things. I see it in my group of friends. It doesn't matter where they're from, whether they're from the U.S., Europe, Africa, whatever. We're so extremely detached from you know spirituality religion how many people i know in my circle go to church or go to the mosque or go to you know whatever to pray not many maybe not even one you talked about that sense of community you talked about you know that space uh, that safe space where your generation or the one before that we had that you know whether it's the uncle whether it's the grandma whether it's even the parents who tell you today is sunday today is friday let's go to you know, the house of God, because there's going to be a preacher who's going to teach you the ways of life through the holy books. Today, we don't have time for that because Saturday you're going out. And when it's Sunday morning, you're not up for whatever. <laughs> you're not up for church. And you know what I mean? It's like, there's no time for that anymore. I know you wrote a book about the black church where women pray and men pray, which is super interesting. But nowadays, like men don't even have to pray on women in these places because they can do it online, you know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's it's super hard. And I don't know if you've thought about this, but how do you reckon we could go back to that sense of community? Maybe not through religion, because I feel like lots of people are not interested in that anymore, which is for me, at least, uh, and the person that I am is sad, but how can we like mend that and find a new way to communicate these things? Because you say there are resources, there are books like yours, there are videos like yours, there are so many things on YouTube, podcasts, but not everyone is mature enough or at least conscious enough to look for these things. Right. And, you know, and sometimes I feel like we have a limited vision of this world because of the information that we have access to. And sometimes some people do not even know that they need to look up these things. Uh, that's where, you know, church and whatever preachers come in because they usually give you some sort of beginning of awakening and they make you think about things. And then if you're really interested, you can, you know that they exist so you can look them up. But now you, we don't do that anymore. How do you think we can mend those two worlds and bring them together and try to fix those things because they are becoming very present in today's societies? Yeah, that's very true. I think um, we can start with groups of friends because in every group, no matter what, a family group, work group, a social group of group of friends, neighbors, whatever, there's always one person who's kind of the leader that other people look to for direction, mm. for the answers, for assistance, for guidance. That person in whatever group, if, if that person would be willing to, to step forward and set up some kind of like discussion group. Because if you really think about a church, it's just a matter of, you know, the church itself is a building, but what happens in there is that everyone is there for a common purpose, for a singular goal, to make yeah. themselves a better person and to worship whatever their, their God is. So if you remove the religious aspect of it and focus on the 
we're here to make each other better, stronger people, then mm. that same goal can be accomplished by getting together at, at each other's homes, you know, have a little little food, come and sit down and have some real conversations like you and I are having right now. What, mm. is, what, is, what is the problem? What can we do to fix it so that going forward, our children and ourselves do not have this problem anymore? What can we do? Let's take responsibility, let's be accountable, and let's do something about this. Not just throw up our hands and say, oh, you know, woe is me, this is the problem. Oh, what are we gonna do? But, mm. you know, instead, you know, these are young, strong, educated people. Let's get you guys get together and do something about it. So you can see that there's a lack of direction and a lack of spirituality. That means that people are disconnected from themselves. When you have a whole group of people who are disconnected from themselves, there's no way in this world that they can be connected to anyone else. So what is that gonna mean for society? Like I said earlier, it's going to be a societal breakdown unless things turn around. The thing is each tribe, basically each group of people has its own leader. That being said, if we go back in time, that tribe leader used to be the wisest, the one with most experience, the strongest. But now it's like we don't choose these people. I mean, we choose them for certain aspects, but now maybe the leader of the group is going to be whoever made it financially. I think it takes a responsible, mature, very conscious person to take that lead. And unfortunately, from what I see is that lots of groups of people have, you know, like you said, each group has a leader, but most leaders are not necessarily, you know, the greatest of examples to be in that <laughs> position, you know, because maybe they're just money focused or maybe they're uh, sometimes the leader is just the guy. And we were talking about dating. It's just the guy who dates the most, you know, girls or the girl who dates most guys. It doesn't mean that that person is going to be able to lead. Well, let me clarify that then. When I say leader, what I mean is a person who does have that kind of wisdom and who is a resource for other people. They may not have the most money. They may not be the most popular as far as dating and all of that goes. I'm talking about some innate inner qualities that makes that person someone that others come to. If you have someone who you come to for guidance, for instruction, for to bounce ideas off because you trust that person's thinking and, and you know you believe in that they know what the answer might be, you're going to naturally put that person in a position of leadership in your life. Now, you're right. Some people may not be qualified for that, but that's what's good about having a group dynamic is that you may have several leaders. You may have some person who can lead the best in fitness, someone who leads the, leads the group and teaches everyone about nutrition and cooking, someone mm. in the group who is really excellent with money management so that everybody in the group learns about budgeting, saving and investing from this person. But together as a group are stronger and better people than you are by yourselves. Hopefully that explains what I meant a little bit better. hundred percent. So that would set us up for a much, much better world. Um, and let's hope people listen to these kind of talks to awaken themselves and, you know, make the right steps forward. Now, let me ask you some questions, given that you're an author and everything. One is extremely simple. What's that like? <laughs> yeah, it requires a lot of personal discipline. I bet. Well, you know, if you, you have a goal, so I set a goal, I'm, okay, I'm going to finish this book in three months. Mm. And uh, so I made myself sit down every morning at my computer at the same time. And it didn't, you know, my little cup, trusty cup of coffee. And mm. I would start writing something or I would edit something that I wrote the day before. But I worked on each of my books 
every day during the period of time that I set aside for it to make the deadline that I had. And I was very disciplined with myself. No ifs, ands, or buts. Turned my phone off, told my friends, no, I'm not going out to dinner with you. I have to work on my book. Things like that. So that's one thing. The second is don't just write about what's important to you. <laughs> you have to write about what's, what is it that you want to share with the world? What is it that you mm. think people are unaware of it that they need to know? A lot of people write a book, but it's a vanity thing. They're just talking about, you know, themselves or something. And it's like, you're not really that interesting. I mean, I hate to burst your bubble. So three people, your mother, your aunts, and your kid are going to read your book. What is it that you are going to bring to the world that's going to either make people happier or educate them and inform them? Those are the things that people want to read. And then, of course, you know, if you have a topic that, oh, how do I put this? It's something people want to know, but you have to figure out how you're going to deliver it in a way that will make them want to read it. That was my next question. How do you determine, how do you set the tone for how you, you talk to, to people? It's super hard. Like we were talking about this earlier when we started today about, you know, being diplomatic and not being judgmental. And, you know, there are so many traps that you shouldn't fall into because if the person reading your book feels judged or feels a certain way, then they're just going to stop reading. So you have right. to make... You know, you have to make sure you're talking to them in their own language. So how do you figure that out? You have to focus. What is your target market? What's your target? Uh, that was my first step. Like with the book I did on the black church, my target market was women. Mm. And I ruffled a lot of feathers. There were mm. groups of pastors all over the country that were mentioning my book in their sermons. I got reports of all kinds of awful things because mm. they felt that I was attacking them. But it's like, I'm not attacking you unless you're doing these things that I said in the book. If you're a really good pastor, you're not doing any of these things. And I'm not talking about you. Don't get defensive. You know, my grandmother used to say, if the shoe fits, wear it. Then you just have to let all the other stuff fall by the wayside. And I made sure that I, when I write, I word my things and structured the sentences in a way that most people can interpret it. And that's important if you're going for a, a broad commercial audience because most people, either because English is their second language or because of education and reading comprehension issues, the statistics said that most people read at a, between a seventh and eighth grade reading level. So, you know, you have to kind of choose words, structure your sentences and paragraphs and things that convey the message that you want to get across without using words that are going to send someone to the dictionary every other sentence. So they, mm -hmm. you know, you lose the flow and impact. So it, it's, it's, it's a lot to think about, but once you start writing, you know, you, you can figure that out, which, what you want to, what you want to say and how you want to say it. When was it that you, you know, realized that you had a lot of things to say and you wanted to put them in, in a written form, given that you had your, you know, your website and your business uh, prior to that, right? Right. Um, you know, to tell you the truth, my first book, Suckle Free Love, came to me in a dream. Oh, wow. Actually, so did the, so did the Black Church book. I dreamed those books and I've envisioned the cover, the content, the title, everything. And uh, so then I woke up, I keep a tablet by my bedside, just a habit I developed as a teenager to write down my dreams. So I you know, wrote everything down and even sketched out what the cover looked like in, on both instances when I woke up so I could remember. And then I had artists recreate them. And mm -hmm. um, the first book was actually going to be sold. I was going to have a commercial I'm not going to say the name of, but a book publisher wanted to publish it. 
However, once the contract came, you know, I gave it to my brother, who's my youngest brother's an attorney, to look it over for me. And uh, he read it. And he calls me. He says, well, did you look at this thing? And I'm like, well, no, why would I do that? That's your job. And he says, well, you know, in this thing, it gives them the right to change the title, the cover, and any of the content. Did you understand that? Well, since what I, what I had was the dream, why would I let them change it? So that's when I first discovered something called self-publishing, which I had never heard of. I think it was pretty new at the time. And uh, so I looked into it and that's what I did with that book. But it got lots of publicity from you know, a lot of uh, black magazines, Ebony, Essence, something called Honey. And I mean, all these big hmm. magazines. Uh, so the book sold really, really well. And you can put it on Amazon. It sells just like anything else. Yeah. And what year was this? Uh, 97. 97. Okay. No, no, I'm sorry. This website's 97. 2007 yeah. is when I published the first book, 2007. Got it. Okay. A completely different, you know, era, right? How, mm-hmm. how does that compare to today? Because I feel like today it's way more accessible to basically write a book and publish it. Back then, even in 2007, it was, I'm assuming, different and a little bit harder. So how, do you, how does it compare to today? Oh, well, now it's so easy. It's ridiculous. Because, you know, there, there's uh, PDFs and, and, you know, different software. You can <laughs> yeah. design all your stuff. They have Canva and all these things where you can design your cover yourself. I mean, so uh-huh. easy. Whereas, you know, before I had to pay somebody to do all that. And mm. um, I mean, I'm glad I did because there's no way my, the cover would have looked the way it looked if I did it. Trust me. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> you know, but I mean, yeah. when you look at the resources that you can have on your, even on your phone, these days, it's, there's, if you, someone has something to say, there's no excuse. They can publish their book in a PDF, you know, and but, upload it to some on-site, online but place. But it, it makes it that much harder to basically get readers, though. Because back then, I feel like, this is at least my opinion as a reader, uh, books that I used to read back then, you know, they had like a hardcover and you had to buy them in libraries. So before you got the book, you had some sort of expectations and usually lived up to them. Now there's this abundance in not just books, but all sorts of content. How does one, especially like a published author like yourself, sort of grab, you know, the attention that they deserve? Although it's easier to touch more people, but I feel like people are less they're less likely to take the time at least to download a whole book and read it when in reality they're just uh, watch a YouTube video or listen to a podcast you know so how do you manage all this well for me the secret to my success was first having a well-established platform got it so mm. by the time my books were released you know you got 25,000 people following yeah. you you have your fans already right right exactly so i just say oh yeah i'm going to be releasing my book and you know it's finished it's at the editor oh i'm going to be you know taking pre-orders for my book so people send in their money so i'm going to be you know the book is going to be released on friday yay you know this kind of Mm. thing i'm going to do an interview with so-and-so about the book uh you know so it, it builds anticipation but if you don't already have a platform or some way to hurry up and get one well, yeah, you, you are going to struggle because there's such competition for eyeballs these days. A hundred percent. Speaking of, of your books, uh, you know, you, you wrote the 24 types of suckers to avoid. Uh, can you walk me a little bit through it and just to get a glimpse into what it is? Well, there are 
you know, basically that was going to start off kind of like an article and then I just kept expanding it. But basically mm. it talks about 24 types of guys that pretty much fit into these categories. That Aren't you're there really 24 though? I mean, no, there's probably is... 50. I'd stop. <laughs> oh my I just, God. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't do it anymore. But uh, there's like, okay, like the mama's boy type. You know, the mm, kind of guy who, mm. whatever, no matter what you do, is never going to be as good as his mother. Yeah. And, you know, you got to be constantly compared to her. And it's just a nightmare. And then there's the kind of guy that, you know, I call like the player. The ones that want to have all the women. And, you mm -hmm. know, they'll tell you whatever you want to hear. You know, 100%. that's one. And then there's the religious nut. The guy mm. who, you know, everything is, is, is lens. Everything he says to you is through the lens of some religion. And it's usually done in a way to guilt trip the woman and, you know, to manipulate and coerce her into doing what he wants to using the word of, you know, whoever. It, yep. it, yeah. So, Not I mean, it, you know, it goes on from there, but there's a lot to unpack there. And some of the guys, I think that women date are in more than one category, but uh, that they continue to be in the relationship. I just don't get it. I don't have time for that. That's, so that's why I wrote the book anyway, because it's something that was in my head and it was tools that I used to kind of discern, determine if a guy was you know, good for me or not. And at the end of the book, I put a very detailed description on the kinds of men that one should be looking for and the qualities and personality traits and behaviors that he should exhibit for you to say, okay, two thumbs up, I'll take this one. Got it. If we can basically sum up some of your advice, because I have a majority, I think, of female listeners. So how would you sum it up? Like, basically, if, if someone is struggling to find the person that you summed up at the end of the book. Let me see. How could I sum that up in one sentence? That's, dude, this is, <laughs> you just be throwing out these serious challenges so early in the morning. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, ladies, I'm speaking directly to the ladies. The one thing that you must never do is sacrifice your morals, your values, and your self-respect for a relationship. I don't care how much money he has. I don't care how good he is between the sheets. I don't care about what he looks like. That has nothing to do with the wonderful value of your heart and your spirit. That should only be given to a man who deserves it. And if he calls you names, he'd stand you up. He says anything dismissive or rude to you, anything that hurts you, that you know, makes you cry, and you're just in the early phases of dating. He does and says stuff that lets you know you can't depend on him. That's somebody that you toss back into the dating pool. You don't stay with the guy like that. And that phrase, quote, make it work, you can't make anything work unless that other person is, is knee deep in it, trying to do exactly the same as you. It takes both of you to, quote, make it work, not just you. That's not your burden to bear. I think so many young women feel like they have to be involved in what we call struggle love, that if it doesn't mm. hurt, that it's not real, that there's going to be tears and picking up and getting back together. You know, all this drama, that's not mm. a stable relationship. And that's not a man who really wants to be with you because the guy who wants to be with you, you're never going to break up. Oh, he's never going to, he, if he would rather die than hurt you. And so it's, it's a very interesting dynamic. I think, again, we're back to that family dynamic thing. If you've never seen that kind of man, you know, that kind of manhood modeled in that kind of relationship, you have no concept of it. So you're going to be recreating the drama that you grew up seeing. Mm. So I try to, you know, try to re-educate young women on how to properly vet men and what they should and should not be accepting from them. Because if the end result is to have a happy relationship where you're respected and, and loved and cared for, you have to make some hard choices sometimes. And sometimes it's going to hurt. You got to cut people loose. But in the end, you'll be happy that you did. 
that's amazing. Thank you so much. That's golden advice. Let's flip it up a little bit and let's talk about the ones that are, uh, like you said before, it's it's up to the guy to decide whether, you know, uh, the relationship is going into something more serious, basically a marriage or not, since right. we live in a majority society where things happen that way. So what would you say to the dudes who are listening and who are sort of clueless for some part of them? Others are not necessarily clueless, but... You know, they don't know necessarily what they want or at least how to behave when they have what they want, but they don't manage to know how to keep it. Well, one thing that usually kind of reframes it in a way that they can get it is if, you know, if a guy has sisters, mother, grandmother, aunt, you know, which most mm. people have, and you know that that person, those people are important to you, those are someone else's daughters too. Mm. So how would you want your sister your daughter, your mom, and your aunts to be treated by men. Whatever way that is, because you love those women. You don't mm -hmm. want anybody hurting them. Something mm -hmm. because guys, I'll go to blows. I'll beat somebody up if he hurts my sister. You know, this is, okay, well, remember that this girl over here that you're dating, that's somebody's sister too. And her brother feels exactly the same way about her. If you cannot treat the women in your life with respect, then please leave them alone. Just don't, just don't go out into the world with the idea that you're going to hurt and disrespect people. And I think if more men did that, uh, a lot of the problems, and I'm talking about emotional problems, that women, young women suffer, they wouldn't suffer. So, and it's the kind of thing that I think older men aren't telling young men these kind of things. Something as simple as, you know, you don't, you're not entitled to a woman's body. You're not entitled to her time. If you ask her out and she says no, she can, she can say no. That means, you know, it's just like flavors of ice cream. You're just not a flavor, dude. <laughs> just accept it. Mm -hmm. So, but, you know, a lot of guys are not being taught how to accept rejection even. So I think it's got to start with things like that, just getting emotional control over yourself and, and understanding, you know, having some empathy for the opposite sex and then, um, and then build from there. But, you know, determining what you need in a person, is a, in a partner, starts with you determining who you are as a, as a man. And then what's going to compliment you? Again, introspection. And, um, mm. you know, a lot of people just aren't that good at that. But that's what's required to answer your question. You've got to know what you know yourself to know what you have to offer and what you need. You talked about introspection, but we touched on this earlier on. We are now in a, in a world where it feels like it's a little bit, you know, hard when you are struggling with everything outside of yourself to do that exercise and and try to think about what you want what you have to offer yourself and what you're ready for right um i feel like most people just jump into something and they feel like it's going to figure itself out when in reality and we see it in millions of people that's not how it works these things take work like you said and they take discipline just like writing a book you have to be serious you have to know what you want and to know what you want, you have to think for yourself. I feel like we live in a world where things are so fast paced and we're so focused on things that are that are like outside of our control and outside of ourselves that it's hard to practice. Um, right. how, do you, how do we do it? How do we like switch that focus and take the time for ourselves to think for ourselves and to know ourselves? Uh, some of that is, I think, comes with maturity. Yeah. And when I was young, I didn't necessarily do a lot of that myself. But it comes a point where 
you start, you know, you want to have a, a, a serious relationship and uh, you can feel that, you know, that's part of what's going on with you. You want to have a deeper kind of connection with someone. You have to get still and you think about what you've been doing and what's worked and what hasn't. The kind of relationships that you've had, what you liked, what you didn't. You know, just start with basic things like that. Think about the comments that have come in from your relatives that have met your significant others. What things did they say that were positive and what things did they have a problem with? They know you sometimes better than you know yourself. And then put all of that together and um, and start from there. Looking at what kind of things, other, the way other people see you that love you, you know, your good traits and your not so great ones. And uh, try to work on the ones that aren't so great and then amplify the ones that are. And work on making yourself a better person, a more worthy mate for someone. And uh, mm. I think the pieces all kind of start to fall into place once you start doing that. Now, let me take you a little bit back. In the 90s, interracial dating was not something easy to talk about, right? I know that you talked about those issues back then. What took you there and what made you go there? And how difficult was it back then to you know, address these issues? Yeah, I grew up in San Francisco, which is mm -hmm. a melting pot of every corner of the world. I looked at, you know, my wedding pictures. It's like a little United Nations. And those were my, you know, those were my <laughs> friends, those are people I grew up with. So to me, you know, I, I remember my very first friend in kindergarten was a little girl named, well, her day first name was Audrey, but she was Hawaiian. Mm. And, uh, and then my first boyfriend in high school was half Hawaiian and half Chinese. And, uh, you know, I don't know, through my, you know, the best boyfriend I've ever had in my life who treated me the best was Japanese. So, you know, for me, I'm not stuck on what somebody looks like on the outside. To me, that's like buying a house for the coat of paint. Well, I mean, what, what's the foundation like? Does it have termites, mold? I mean, you know, let's look a little deeper here. But, yeah. you know, I go by how a man treats me. How does he talk to me? How does he treat my parents? Those are the kind of things that I'm looking at to determine if someone's going to be a good match for me and my very precious brothers. And, uh, you know, that's how I, that's how I would choose a man. I don't go by, I mean, I don't want him to be broke. And of course, I don't want him to look like a, you know, like a Gila monster or anything. But mm -hmm. um, I do, that's not as important to me as how he makes me feel when I'm with him. How do I feel when he's on the phone talking to me? How do I feel when he looks at me, when he hugs me? How do I feel? And I want that, all of those things to be the priority in how I, uh, how I select a man. And you know, if he makes me, if he hurts me, he makes me cry, he makes me feel pure, I doubt him in any way, then I know that that's not the man for me. And I just leave him alone. Hmm. Interesting. How do you deal with that? Like when you're out in the world and you get people who are twisting in the head and who look at you <laughs> a certain way, you know, um, how do you deal with that? Like as a person, you know, as just a human being without necessarily being, you know, a person who's knowledgeable about this. But how do you deal with that? The bottom line is, you know, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, hmm. but it's, this is this is the bottom line. If you are going to date interracially, don't be a coward. Don't mm -hmm. be a wimp and have, you know, the fortitude and the independent mind to make your decision and stick to it. If you are so weak in the mind that you're going to let other people determine who you love and who you be with, then you're not ready. You, you stay over there somewhere because you are not ready. And it requires not, you know, people to make a decision, which is any commitment. You make a decision and you make that commitment and you stick to it. That is what fortitude 
its personal strength is. If you don't have those qualities and you're just doing it because it's fun or it's exciting or you're trying to be, I don't know, hip or you're trying to make a statement to your family and you're rebelling and all this kind of stuff. Mm. I mean, really think about why you're making the decision that you're making. But if you are truly, this is truly the person that you feel that you were meant to be with, you wouldn't let anybody break you up. 100%. But there are people who have no idea that their you know, family would react that way. So how does it work for these people? It's like, you know, they have they, to tell their family. No, it's like, you don't decide for me who I love. Did I decide right. for you? I mean, it's like, I'm an adult now. I make my decisions for my life. You don't either. You can be happy for me or you can sit over here and be mad. But guess what? If I'm not going to, one thing I'm not going to do is let you be around me and spoil my life and that of my children with your judgmental negative attitudes. So remember mm-hmm. that when I have children, don't ask me to come and you say you, you've changed your mind and you want to be the grandparent now, because now I'm not going to trust you, which you've already expressed your attitudes and your belief systems to me. And it's nasty. I'm not going to let you poison the minds of my children. Not going to happen. So, you know, at some point, like you have to have boundaries. And like I said, you have to have strength in order to endure that kind of stuff because you are going to be different. And if you can't stand it, then move to someplace like California where everybody dates everybody and nobody cares what you do. You could date a rock and we'd be like, oh, wow. What what your little rocky children are going to look like? (laughs) (laughs) For real. (laughs) You guys over there are different, man. I'm telling you, nobody cares. I mean, just serious. And this is where I grew up. So, you know, it's really hard for me to conceive that somebody would be stuck, you know, stupid like that. It's you like you're looking at how your how does this person treat your child? I could see it if they were being abusive. And yeah, they hate them too. But it wouldn't be because of their race. It would be because they're stupid. And I don't, I don't want you hurting my child. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, I don't understand that kind of mentality. Hmm. You know, when I say these type of things to people, because I'm pretty straightforward, even if that person is a parent, if they're racist or they have some twisted ideas, then just cut them off and give them some space so that they can think about how stupid what they're saying is. When I say these things to people, they always say the same thing. It's not that easy. And I'm like, it should be. I mean, some people just do not deserve your time and your attention. They definitely do not deserve to have a say in who you date or who you befriend, right? Yeah, I just don't get it. So I'm sitting here, I'm sitting here, you know, really struggling with this because I'm looking at my calendar and it's saying, you know, 2021. And it's like, when are people going to let that go? I, I would have thought that by maybe even the 90s, all of these things would have went out the window. You know what I mean? Unfortunately, it's not the case. And I feel like they're always going to be there because I remember when I was like a lot younger. And like you said, um, I was in New York. So it's also a melting pod. And in the schoolyard, um, there were people from so many different origins. And I remember that we used to have these conversations with my parents about, you know, our differences as mixed kids, as kids who had like people from mixed families and people from so many different backgrounds. We were supposed to be the generation of let's stop all this bullshit. But then now I look people in their 20s, in their 30s, who are supposedly young and who grew up in mixity and who are exactly like their, their parents and who are just as you know, close-minded and racist and everything you'd expect. What can we do to stop that? I mean, it's, it's not even doable for us to just act as if our color is not going to matter because as things stand, at least, it's super hard to make everyone coexist, at least. This is my thing. No, you don't. You know, we're not single-handedly going to change the world and eliminate racism, sexism, ageism, 
you know, sizeism. We're not going to do that. But all Why we not, can though? do. Why not? Well, we, we, this is, well, let, me, let me finish. We can't <laughs> eliminate it. But what we can do is put a big dent in it. And so we can make sure that we check ourselves and that we eliminate that kind of thinking in our children. And if people took that kind of response, because that's where kids learn that stuff. They learn it from home. And they hear their parents saying that nonsense. And Uh so the kids parent what they hear. You know, that's our biggest teacher is our parents. So that's where children are learning racism. That's where they're learning to bully other children. They're learning the stuff at home from their parents and our older siblings. So if we take the responsibility to make sure that we, A, check those those attitudes in ourselves, and B, make sure to eliminate it it if it rears its ugly head in the young people in our families, then we can put a big dent one by one by being accountable for that kind of stuff in our own circle. And so I feel like, yes, you're right. I mean, we, we can't you know, not consider color, but my point is, okay, so you consider color. I consider color when I buy a car. So does that, mm-hmm. does that change anything? Am I gonna let that stop me? I might have to work twice as hard as the white girl to get the same position, but guess what? If I want it, I'm gonna get it. And you're not going to tell me no. I don't care if I have to sue you to get it. I'm going to do it because I want it and I deserve yeah, but it. But why do we have to? That's what I'm saying. That Why do we have to work twice as much? That's, that's the whole problem with systemic racism. We've normalized having to always put twice as much effort to get half as much. But pain. see, that's what I'm saying, though. But you know what? Black women, we don't let that stop us. See, so that's the kind of thing you can, this is, an ex, this is what exists. Okay, like right now there's wildfires in California. Mm-hmm. Okay, now if I want to go someplace in California, am I going to let that stop me? I'm going to go around it, but I'm still going to get to the destination I'm trying to go. You have smoke, you have fire, you have loss of buildings, property, life, all kind of stuff. But okay, I, I acknowledge that and that's really sad that that's happening. But is that going to stop me from getting to where I want to go? And the answer is no. I have to go around you. If I have to dig a tunnel under it, I'm going to get there. That is just life. Everything is not going to go the way that you want it, whether it's racism, whether it's sexism, whether it's, you know, because you don't have the money and it's an economic thing, whatever. You Where there's a will, there's a way. And there is, is my will is extremely strong. And so I, I'm not going to accept no from anybody. It may take me longer, but I'm going to still do it because I decided that I was and you just nothing you can do to stop me. 100%. I think you're blessed and some people are blessed with that kind of mindset, but others it's so much harder for them, I think. And that's where people like yourself, people like us have to make sure uh, these people do not get stepped on. And, and so that these people do not have to work twice as much to get just the thing and they don't have to go around it. What can we do us people who have managed to go around the fire to get to where they want to go? How do we manage to put out the fire once and for all and at least make little fires here and there, but um, maybe make them less present and less prominent in a society that is supposed to have evolved well it requires courage tk the courage to identify a problem and then to do something about it and like i said if you got a bunch of people though that see problems in themselves they aren't really doing anything about it to fix themselves where are they going to have the power and the resources and the personal fortitude to step outside of themselves and do anything about society so again it all circles back to self and you have you have people who 
you know, they're not necessarily willing to put in the work. They give up on everything. They want it to come easily because they're in the instant gratification society. Nothing that you get in this world is worth having if you don't have to work for it. You know, you cannot expect everything to be given to you. It's going to require work. Like I said, we can make big dents in it. Every time you see someone being sexist or racist, speak up. When someone does something inappropriate, you know, you have male friends, and these guys will do this a lot. Their friends will say some really foul stuff about some girl or, you know, try to touch her inappropriately or something like that. You know what? The guys in his circle are supposed to check him. I say, man, don't be doing that kind of stuff. Like, you got your mind. You don't act like that. And that's how you want to act, dude. You can't hang with us because we don't conduct ourselves like that. And you make it the rest of us look like we're trifling like you are. Get out of here with that. Don't do that crap again. So, you know, you shut it down and you have a boss who's doing something that's, you know, racist and stuff. And here you are like another, say some two, you know, the white boss is white and this other person's white too. And you see, you notice that this person is treating a person of color or a woman in a way that is not appropriate. You're supposed to speak up and say, dude, you know, I saw what you were doing. I saw what you said. That's really not cool at all. And it's illegal. You know, you need to stop. Because, you know, I'm not really down with this kind of stuff. But you don't have people that are willing to put themselves out there like that. So this kind of stuff will continue. If, you know, your silence is tacit agreement. So if you don't speak up and check the people around you for their egregious behavior, it means that you're a part of the problem. So you can't have it both ways. Word up. I couldn't agree more. That's exactly what I was getting at. That's why I was asking these questions because... You see, those are practical things that all of us can do. Whether you're a minority, whether you're just a guy, like you said, in a group of dudes, there is something that we can do. And another thing that's been a great idea, something that's picking up pace is Black-owned businesses and supporting your own Black-owned businesses. It's on us to make the right choices to at least limit our impact and make our impact as positive as possible. We can make a difference, at least by supporting the right people. Exactly. That's where it all begins, to be honest. You know, we can, we can say whatever we want, but who we support, not just morally, but also financially, is who is going to lead us in a certain way. So it's on us to do what we got to do to survive. Yeah, that's one thing I, you know, I work on a lot on my channel in addition to, because my work has kind of morphed, I guess. Hmm. Um, it started just doing dating and relationship advice, but I went over once I realized that part of the reason why women were making so many poor choices was a lack of self-esteem and the inability to understand what a boundary is, how to set them and how to maintain them. So I started working a lot on developing inner strength and fortitude for women. So a lot of the content that I produce at this point has to do with with self-esteem, self-confidence, building Mm -hmm. uh, boundary setting and things along those lines, recognizing abusive partners, red flags, that kind of thing. Yep. What you're doing is exactly what we are all supposed to do in our respective fields. What you're doing is raise awareness around things that can literally shape future generations. Paying it forward is exactly what this is all about. So thank you for your work, for all the gems you dropped on this episode. It's been truly very fulfilling and very enriching. Well, I really appreciate you asking me to wake up. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I've actually, I've enjoyed it. (laughs) You're it's, a great host. It's still, it's still, thank you so much. It's still early to go back to bed. I'm not sure you're going to do that because you probably had too much coffee. But Yeah, now I'm lying. I'm buzzed. I'm ready to go now. <laughs> so like, oh, man. But this was good. This was really good. So, you know, send me the link once it's 
once sure, everything yeah. is done and uh and i'll share it with my uh, youtube visitors perfect yeah i'll do that well thank you so much is there like a book coming out well I, you know my goal was to work on it over the summer but you know this continuation of the COVID nonsense really yeah. threw you know it just threw everything off but mm -hmm. i have uh, two books i'm working on one is about uh knowing when it is to break up and one is uh for girls headed off to college called surviving college boys mm. so uh, those are two that things is... that i'm working on wow super interesting for the both of them surviving college is i mean i probably would read it because i feel like that's one of the trickiest part in not just a girl's life but also a guy's life because you're yeah. literally just moving out of the family nest you don't know much you know your environment was pretty much always the same up until this point and now you're on your own and you're making your own decisions and you're responsible there's more expectations of you to act as an adult which you're not let's be clear about it so right. you know and i think that a lot of young people they can make they make some mistakes this is a pivotal point of life and mm. some of the decisions that they make during their, those first two years out of the house can change the trajectory of their entire life for the better or for the absolute pits so uh, it's very important that you know they get some understanding of what they need to do and not do so I, you know, I'm working on that and uh, but you know in the meantime I invite anybody who wants to to hear my words of wisdom to, you know over to my YouTube channel it's Depsterism D-E-B-S-T-E-R-I-S-M on YouTube that's it's like awesome. a thousand videos now wow that's a lot of work and you can find you know all the information below you guys are gonna learn so much well there you have it folks Cheers.